that biohazard in your kitchen, it's your dishwasher. Welcome to Service Calls, a podcast brought to you by TechTown in partnership with Food Service Equipment Reports. I'm Rob LaFriends, and in this episode, we're coming clean and talking about dishwashers. And joining me is Food Service Equipment Reports Chief Content Officer, Allison Resendiz. We'll also hear about how important it is to stick to your guns when the science is on your side. But first, on the phone from San Antonio, Texas, Commercial Kitchen Service Supervisor Eric Luna joins us, and we're going to talk dishwashers. And the thing about dishwashers is while they're all about cleaning, they can be pretty gross, they're wet, and operators rarely clean them. Uh, what's your response to Texas say they're not trained or prepared for biohazards? You know what, and it's very interesting again, to use the word biohazards uh, and actuality you never really thought about it as a biohazard until unfortunately with the pandemic this past year. But looking into that and reading that, you kind of hear that and you're like, man, you know what? People put these dishes and everything in their mouths and they fall on the floor and they had the food contaminants. So now they, they've had, they've had an extra level to what we rely on for cleanliness. Now what these dish machines have to do to better prepare these, our technicians, I mean, we have to let them know it's a mental game as well. That We train them in understanding situations that they're going to be walking into so that they're prepared to get this so they don't walk in and kind of freak out. Not just from sometimes how the dish machine looks, but down to like exactly what's going through it. Because there can be numerous products. And sometimes it's not even just dishes from the food. And sometimes in some locations, it's kind of some random stuff. And you would kind of like, oh, this is a different purpose than it was intended for. One thing that we've enacted right now with everything that's happened with the pandemic and the coronavirus is that we've also supplied them with uh, the proper PPE for going into a situation like that where they do run into a piece of equipment. However, now we have new procedures to where they, when they go and they arrive to any equipment, they do sterilize it. They sanitize all the surfaces as much as possible, exterior and interior within reason, obviously, right? Because you don't want water around electricity. But within reason, they do that. They use their gloves to help keep contact, and that helps a lot. Um, especially when you get into a dishwasher and it has been, it's been sitting there for a while, man, that water can get kind of gross. So those are things that, uh, that we make sure that they have so they can be ready for that. Eric, what's the right way to measure temperature readings? We hear that the health department does it one way and technicians do it another way. It's, a, it's one of those up for debates, and I don't think one way is the right or the wrong way. Uh, my concern is making sure that you get your temperature the proper temperature. There's two types of dishwashers. No matter if it's a small unit or a large unit, you have low temp dishwashers, which use chem uh, chemicals to help sterilize the dishes, or you use a high temp, which uses a combination of chemical, like a, a detergents, to wash it, and then also your high, your temperature of a minimum of 180 degrees to sterilize. You get uh, inspectors, they'll go in there and they'll use little test strips that they put on the surface of a dish and they'll pass them through. Usually you'll see them ranging from like 160 to 170, depends on it, but they want to make sure that the surface at least reaches that temperature. We like to kind of take it a little bit step further. I would say we want to guarantee that the water that's being used in that final rinse is at the proper temperature, depending on if it's low or high temp. So we'll use um, a digital thermometers. Uh, in some instances, if we can't use it, we'll make sure to measure like the temperature at the pipe going in because they'll use copper, which is actually a great heat conductor. And we're able to put our temperature clamp on there and verify what our temp is. And it, it depends on the person and how they do it. Some people do still like to use the strips because you can say, hey, look, your inspector's going to come and this is what he's going to use. So this, we're going to use the same thing. 
or mm-hmm. we can still say, but either way, we, we want to guarantee that that water is at the proper temperature and the right amount of volume at the same time. Eric, how can a tech diagnose a low voltage short that's taking out transformer secondaries? It can get complicated as you, as you make it, or it can be as simple as you want to make it. Uh, the biggest thing that I found that helps a lot of my guys over here, especially me from being in the field, is do your best to find that diagram. That wire diagram is basically going to be your Bible to the unit, and it's going to help you uh, isolate sections, areas, and uh, you're going to be able to use that to troubleshoot the low voltage shortage. Uh, obviously, you can tell also by the, using like a series of operations as to what the unit is doing at what particular time or what happens first, second, and third. That's going to help you also so you don't kind of just take a wild guess and go looking for something somewhere and you're kind of chasing your tail. And another thing also that helps a lot is tricks of the trade. One thing that was shown to me a long time ago when I started was somebody showed me that there's inline fuses. Those blow on the secondaries. But instead of always bringing more fuses, find yourself a resettable fuse that you're able to put in line, connect it, and you're able to trip that. And you do two things. One, you don't have to worry about replacing a fuse if you blow it because sometimes those fuses can cost 30, 40, 60 bucks a fuse. But with the resettable fuse, it also protects your transformer and you don't have to worry about replacing parts that are unnecessary at times. That's what that fuse does. It protects the transformer and it allows you to go through with the help of your wire diagram and that resettable fuse, you go through and you're able to look at it and say, okay, I think this is a problem right here because this is what's happening at this moment. And you're able to disconnect things Test it, uh, check with your meter, read resistances, I'll look for it. And if you can't find it, then you're allowed. It gives you that little bit of a slack leeway to do a little bit of trial and error without causing any harm to anything. The one thing I tell my guys as well, the biggest thing sometimes that helps you is use your nose. Look for things and try to smell around. Because if something's burnt, like a, like a coal on a solenoid, you're going to smell it. You don't always see it, but you're going to smell it. How do you diagnose a not temping on the rinse, especially during heavy use? There's so many things that you have to look at when you're looking, when you have that or you get that uh, description on a service call. And one of the key words right here is during heavy use. To diagnose it properly, you want to verify, I mean, first things first, like, okay, what is your incoming water temperature to the unit? From there, you get a booster heater. You want to verify, is your booster heater sized properly? Are all the elements working on it? Is it rated for the right amount of volume for what your dishwasher is rated for and the use? Here in San Antonio, we have really hard water. So then that adds another level to it. Uh, so we'll get scale, we'll get line built up. And just after one day's use, use, you'll start seeing scale build up on the back on the inside of the dishwashers. So they have to also be cautious with that. I'm going to take you back to electricity again and ask you, how do you efficiently diagnose the safety circuit on a larger unit? You just kind of go one bit at a time. You, I mean, you follow through, you look at your doors, make sure your doors are not are shutting off the unit when you open up the door panel because you don't want hot water spraying out as you open that out, right? Your conveyor belt, you want to make sure that it stops when somebody pulls on it. And so, but safety the safe way about it though is when you're thinking about it, it's low voltage. Some of the a lot of those switches and those safety switches are low voltage, so that if there is a short to the unit, it, it's gonna blow that fuse, but it's not also gonna shock somebody. But you do want to be careful whenever something like that, especially you have high voltage unit, and there's water inside of it next to it. People are spraying water hoses, 
So you do want to make sure that like, a lot of stuff is sealed, panels are in the proper position, that you do lock out, tag out sometimes if you do have to open up and do some work on something specific because you want to protect yourself and others. You know, Eric, we've been giving you lots of questions that we've had from techs in the field. And I just wonder if there's anything that you hear as a supervisor, um, any, you know, top one or two questions that you have that you wanted to be sure to answer today. Specifically questions I hear a lot sometimes are very specific to the, the model and the manufacturer. Sometimes coming down to like passwords, how to get in, sequence of operations. Another question I have is like, man, how do you troubleshoot this? Because this unit is so large. It seems pretty daunting at first when they look at it. And I'm like, look, no, it's basically the same thing, except instead of there being one door switch, now you have five or six or seven. Instead of there being one high limit, you have four or five. So you have to just kind of go through it little by little and take it piece by piece. Those are things like those are the questions that I would hear from our guys. Uh, but even then, like, I also don't hear a lot of questions all the time because we have like, I want to say we have a really great team around mm -hmm. here that if one of my guys is more comfortable calling another technician instead of me, I'm okay with that because they call each other. They, they never shy away from wanting to help each other and they're not going to make that person feel bad about asking that question because they know at one time, Hey, I had that question. I was able to call someone and I would get help. So all the calls don't always come towards me. And that's one thing I kind of asked the guys like, Hey, have you heard anything? How are you doing? They're like, oh, yeah, so-and-so called me for this. And I was like, okay, cool. Did you help them? They're like, yeah, I got to take care of Awesome. Great job. All right. Now, that's a guy who knows his dishwashers. Thank you to Commercial Kitchen's Eric Luna. Next up, let's hit the road for our From the Field segment. And calling from New York, I'm talking to Duffy's AIS Field Service Manager, Paul Pomputis, about an unusual issue with the combi oven. Paul, why did you guys get called out to this recently renovated school? They had a brand new uh, gas-fired combi oven that had severe delayed ignition. And, and when I say severe, it sounded like a shotgun going off when the burner would try and fire. And then after that, it would give them error messages in the, in the readout on the screen. Yeah, not too startling to hear an explosion like that in your restaurant, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so what was your diagnosis? Uh, the gas pressure was dropping so severely when the burner called for gas that it just wasn't enough to maintain the burn and it would, it would build up and then, uh, the ignition was delayed and it would ignite all the gas in the heat exchanger and throw a nice little puff of flame out of the flue. So it was delayed ignition due to low, low gas pressure supply. So what did you recommend, um, to, uh, fix the problem? Well, at that point, I, I told them they needed to get someone from the either construction company, because it was still an active construction site, um, to, you know, just double check their their calculations on the what the BTUs were for the gas lines that they installed, because the, the unit in question required quite a bit of, of BTUs. So tell me about your return visit. Uh, who did the operator have on site and what was everyone trying to prove? Well, they were insisting that the, the issue was with the oven and not anything on their end. He had called out to, you know, the construction supervisor. He called his dealer. He called his factory rep. And when I came back, uh, the dealer and the rep and a, a member of the gas company, one of their service techs was also on site. Everyone's just trying to find the same answer, but they, they were insistent that there was something wrong with the oven. So when I got there, we, we had to walk through everything that I found on my first day so I could show them what I was telling them in the first place was that the pressure at the oven would drop when it was 
when it was calling for heat, even though the pressure was where it was required when it when there was no demand, basically. So what did you ultimately find was causing the gas pressure issue? Well, they had a, it was a three-inch manifold serving all this equipment. It was an entire line of equipment, not just this one large oven. And if there's, a, in the event of a fire, there's a valve that shuts off the gas flow. That valve was only a two-inch diameter valve, even though the manifold for the equipment was sized at three inches. So at that point, the, the gas line was choked down a full inch in diameter, uh, causing the, uh, the pressure drop that we were experiencing at our equipment. Well, that sounds like a pretty major bottleneck. It is, and, and you know they never even gave it a second thought. So how did you solve the issue? Well, after walking the gas company through it, it, from what I understand, the fire suppression company didn't have a valve large enough to go to three inch, and that's why they did it the way they did it. I think the gas company was able, because of the site, they had uh, the ability to boost the pressure in that area to get a higher pressure coming in. And then we just had to adjust it on all the equipment so that when our equipment called for, for heat, it didn't drop so low that it couldn't fire. Do you find this uh, problem a lot or this, this situation a lot where there's, you know, cl- there's a problem with clearly a problem with something and um, but there's a whole bunch of people trying to make sure that the problem isn't on them? I do. I do. I run into it constantly. And it's it's always the same thing. No one wants to be the one at the end of the line w- with the finger pointing. And it's tricky because you want to be polite. You want to be um, want to be nice about it. But at the end of the day, they're all trying to get me to fix something that isn't on my end. So it's a tricky situation. But what I always teach my guys here is that these things can be measured. They can be checked. They can be tested. They can be proven. There's a science to it. And you can prove science. <laughs> so it's, it's you just got to stick to your guns. You got to stay confident. What advice do you have for techs who are out there and find themselves in a similar situation where everyone has a diagnosis that points the finger at someone else? Yeah, the biggest thing is not to second guess yourself. We, we as technicians, especially through Cefesa, we go through an awful lot of training and we start from, you know, the basics, the very basics. And when you take into account the basics and you size things accordingly and you know that the reason you're having this issue is because of an installation design flaw, and you can actually prove it with charts and, and meters and manometers and things like that. It's easy to prove, but it's it's difficult to get other people to believe you. Um, so what I just tell them is just not to second guess yourself. You know how to do your job. Stick to it. Be polite. Uh, and then eventually they'll, they'll have to come around because we know in our heart that the only thing that's going to fix it is correcting what we're telling them to correct. Great advice. Thanks a lot. Duffy's AIS Field Service Manager, Paul Pomputis. Next up, we're turning it over to you for the nuts and bolts segment. And this month we asked, with summer just about here, what's one unexpected service task you always do in a food service facility before the start of the season? Uh, First up, it's Gary's East Coast Service, Cefesa Certified Master Technician, Alan Vickeriel. Things that are sometimes overlooked while doing a PM preventative maintenance job would be um, cable tethers on the back of the equipment that has casters, drip trays, uh, and pans and so forth. Also, a a good thing to always check that most people forget would be gas pressure on equipment. Uh, Regulators could be clogged up with grease and so forth and will uh, not allow the equipment to perform properly. 
These next two came in via email, so I asked a couple colleagues of mine to put a voice to them. This one comes from Heritage Service Group Branch Manager Bob Collin. We're finding that kitchens that were shut down during COVID are slowly opening up more sections, or they're going from a limited menu requiring only certain pieces of equipment to a fuller menu in need of a complete kitchen. From a technician standpoint, if I was on call at a facility that was opening up more sections, I would say to customers, do you want me to check any other equipment that you haven't used in a while since I'm here doing a repair on the oven? Is there anything else that you think you'll need? I would offer to do that service. Next up, this is EMR Baltimore technician, Dennis Black. One thing that gets overlooked going into summer service season is the exhaust and makeup air systems. When they do fail, it always seems to happen on a weekend, and that can shut down your customer's kitchen. Some planned maintenance, like belts, grease, and filters, can save your customer from downtime and an expensive after-hours call. Thanks to Bob Kessler and Ron Brown, respectively, for recording those. And as always, thank you for chiming in, listening, and your support. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Next month, our question is, what's your best advice when dealing with a stressed-out operator? We'd love to hear from you, and you can call in to leave a message. Our number is 312-788-7618. That's 312-788-7618. You can also email or record a voice memo on your phone and send it along to servicecalls at fermag.com. And that's it for this episode of Service Calls, brought to you by Tech Town in partnership with Food Service Equipment Reports. We'll be back next month, so be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Rob LaFrance. Thanks so much to our podcast partner, Rivet360. Need help with a podcast? Go to rivet360.com.